Hello, and welcome to our podcast, Veiling Violence. This podcast is created by Alexis Gorfine, Addie Millman, Becca Nickerson, and Grace Connor as a project for our senior history course, Violence, War, and Peace. In this podcast, we will examine the history of emotional abuse and how it manifests in modern day, specifically in our high school. Before we begin, we want to warn all listeners that some of the content in this podcast may be triggering to those who have experienced or know someone who has experienced emotional abuse. If you need help for you or a loved one, please look at the podcast description for some wonderful organizations who can provide help. Before we begin, we would also like to establish a working definition of emotional abuse as it will be used in the episode. According to the United States Department of Justice, emotional abuse, also known as psychological violence or mental abuse, is, quote, undermining an individual's sense of self-worth and or self-esteem, end quote, and includes actions in any relationships, such as, quote, constant criticism, diminishing one's abilities, name-calling, causing fear by intimidation, and forcing isolation from family, friends, or school and or work, end quote, along with other damaging actions. Although this definition is intended more for the emotional abuse that falls under domestic abuse between partners, spouses, and other more intimate relationships, psychological violence is prevalent in all forms. It can occur to anyone in any form of relationship, whether that be romantic, familial, platonic, professional, or otherwise. Furthermore, it can occur to anyone of any socioeconomic background, regardless of gender and or sexual orientation. In this episode, created and researched by Alexis Gorfine, we will discuss emotional abuse in different relationships, specifically through gender constructs. We will also discuss how gender roles have played a part in recognition of post-traumatic stress disorder, or PTSD. According to the Pew Research Center, over 70% of Americans subscribe to a form of Christianity. It is important to consider how this aspect of many people's identities could influence their actions with respect to gender relations, especially within their romantic relationships. Because we are looking to biblical texts, in this analysis we will focus on heterosexual relationships. I am here with Reverend Peter Vorkink II, an Episcopal priest with a doctorate in religion, as well as head of the religion department at my high school, to discuss the role of Christianity in relationships and gender roles, and whether any of those dynamics can contribute or prevent relationship abuse. So the Bible has many interpretations, and do you have your own kind of scale of strictness at which you would hear and interpret the Bible? I'm going to focus on Judaism and Christianity. If we're talking about the so-called Bible of, of Jews and Christians, Hebrew Scripture and the New Testament, I would make the distinction between taking Scripture literally, word for word, or taking it figuratively. And if you take it word for word, you run into, I. this is me speaking as a religion teacher and as a minister, you run into problems because there are all kinds of internal contradictions in Scripture. There are, for example, two creation stories in the first several chapters of the book of Genesis. In one, man and women, men and women are created consecutively. In the other, they're created simultaneously. That's because, according to the sources of the book of Genesis, the author, whoever wrote the book of Genesis, had two different sources and didn't know what to do and stuck them together. For example, do you want to say men and women are equal? They were created simultaneously? Or do you want to take the second creation story and say man was lonely, so woman was created from his rib? 
and that makes women subservient to men. You can proof text anything you want in the Bible, depending on whether you take it literally or whether you take it figuratively. So, if you're asking me, I take it figuratively. I take what is the spirit of what's being said, not what what does it say literally. But either in either case, you will find people of all different political, religious, sociological persuasions able to use the Bible to prove virtually any position under the sun. How are gender roles interpreted in the Bible, especially with consideration to the creation stories you were talking about? When it comes to gender roles, you have to take into account, it seems to me, several things when it comes to the Bible. We're now talking about the Hebrew Christian Bible. The major one is it was written at a time when gender issues were understood differently, which is a polite way of saying they were not understood at all. And therefore, it becomes, again, an attempt to proof text probably something that was not in the mind of the authors when these texts were written. The texts are so ancient and from such a different cultural time that it is very difficult to say on any given gender issue, the Bible says this or the Bible says that. The Bible does not in any one place speak with one voice on any issue. The, almost every person who has done biblical scholarship says that the Bible was probably written by groups of men, not women, although that's an argument from silence. We have no idea who the authors actually were. The majority of the lines in the New Testament about gender roles were written by men with a very different understanding of gender roles and issues than the sensibilities we might have today. But if we go back to the example you asked me about, what, what do you do with those two stories in, in the book of Genesis? Depending on which one you take, the whole rest of your interpretation of the Bible could go in direction A or go in the opposite direction B, just on the basis of which creation story in the book of Genesis you pick. That just shows how much picking and choosing and proof texting can be done in the Bible to prove virtually anything. Historically, has the Bible been interpreted in different ways? Yes, the Bible has been interpreted in different ways in different times. I would say in the last 200 years, it has been interpreted very differently from many of the ways it had been interpreted up to that point. In part, because work, work was done on how scripture was written, the circumstances under which each book in Hebrew scripture and in the New Testament was penned, we understand a lot more about that than we used to, and the general evolution of religion in the meantime means for centuries we understood scripture much more literally than we do in the last several centuries. And once you go from the literal to the figurative route, you open the door to all kinds of different interpretations. What we can clearly gather from speaking to Mr. Vorkink is that the Bible and other religious texts can be interpreted in many ways. Interpreting some religious texts directly can be problematic. However, when interpreted with a modern ear, 
understanding that the texts were written during another time period, they can be a positive source of guidance. Let's take a quick look at some of the religious texts that receive frequent scrutiny and criticism, and the multiple ways they may be read. In the New Testament, Ephesians 5.22.33 reads, Wives, submit yourself to your husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. The idea of female submission in this passage is problematic to a modern reader. However, it is important to consider that this idea coincides to gender roles at the time. If you continue reading, however, you will find that there is still love and respect in relationships. Husbands are instructed to love their wives. Ephesians 5.25-28 reads, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. Again, with all of this, one can interpret it the other way. There's absolutely a possibility that some men or women who consider themselves God-fearing might interpret a religious text in a way that supports their abusive actions. Still, hopefully, those listening to the overarching themes of Christianity will agree with Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, or Matthew 7.12, in which he states, So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. All of this is to say that there is no right or wrong way to read a religious text. Therefore, it is hard to draw universal conclusions regarding the legitimacy of religious texts supporting or denying certain gender roles in religion. Because gender roles in religion can be largely debatable, let's move on to a more concrete topic of institutionalized gender roles, specifically in modern United States, and how and if they play a role in promoting psychological violence. In the United States, women are making great steps towards equality. According to Time magazine, however, these needed movements are causing a masculinity crisis for young men. Men are, quote, feeling abandoned by the thousands of years of history that defined what it meant to be a real man to be strong, to be a provider, to be an authority, to be the ultimate decision maker, and to be economically, educationally, physically, and politically dominant, end quote. What being a man means is changing in modern times. And even in 2018, many males are struggling with diverging from the previously described traditional roles and stereotypes. Professor Paula Rothenberg, who studies race, class, and gender relations, summarizes men's gender roles as a constant test in which men must prove themselves to be powerful, physically and professionally, emotionally stable to the point of completely holding back all emotion, aggressive and daring, and completely unfeminine. So what does unfeminine even mean? Let's take a look at femininity. In the United States, women are still expected to always look nice and to behave submissively, especially to men. While women are celebrated for their advances and power, they are also seen as threatening when they speak too loudly. We can see that women are faced with a contradiction. They are expected to fulfill their traditional gender roles of tending to the home and children while also working full-time and being successful. There are also stereotypical characteristics assigned to men and women. According to Pew Research Center, more than twice as many American women consider themselves nurturing compared to men, and almost twice as many women compared to men consider themselves sensitive. One can see gender roles shifting, however, when the study looks at traditionally male characteristics, such as physically strong and assertive. 
only 7% fewer women than men consider themselves very physically strong. And in fact, 2% more women than men consider themselves very assertive. In line with American gender relations, however, the same study finds that overall, over half of Americans report society looking up to men who display traditional male characteristics, while only a third of Americans report the same for females who display feminine characteristics. Fortunately, these traditional roles are beginning to shift. Still, Americans are facing challenges learning to accept the new ways of gender and gender fluidity in America. A study conducted in 2012 shows that children who are non-gender conforming before the age of 11 are more likely to suffer abuse and experience post-traumatic stress disorder, usually at the hands of an adult in their household. Researchers are not exactly certain why these minority children are more prone to mistreatment, but suggest that it could be related to parental discomfort with nonconformity. These gender norms can prove very harmful to many people, especially those who identify as non-gender conforming or as LGBTQ. In a documentary titled Girls Will Be Boys, Sophia Wallace captures and empowers women who present themselves in a non-normative feminine way. The documentary website reads that the women, quote, don't have the ability to pass as straight women or even as lesbian sex objects, and thus confront homophobia along with class distinctions, racial prejudice, and sexism in a unique combination and on an ongoing basis. Why is this documentary needed? In a 2001 study on lesbian youth, Human Rights Watch noticed, young lesbians do not experience sexism and homophobia as separate events. Instead, the two forms of harassment are mutually reinforcing. It is simply impermissible for girls to reject boys, end quote. This dynamic between men and women, where women are supposed to be submissive to the desires and action of men, is perpetuated. Gender rules are deeply ingrained in American society, and those who dare to break the norms are often looked down upon and mistreated, sometimes to the point of abuse. Even examining more traditional relationships and gender representation, physical abuse is very gendered. In a study published by the National Center for Biotechnology Information, part of the National Institute for Health, researchers found that women are more likely to be victims of violent crimes against intimate partners. They found a high correlation between physical and emotional abuse, as often emotional abuse begins a pattern of violent behavior that turns physical. Emotional abuse, on the other hand, affects men and women pretty evenly. The study National Intimate Partner and Sexual Violence Survey found that 48.8% of American men and 48.4% of American women have experienced psychological abuse from an intimate partner. Gender presentation, however, has an important role on emotional and physical abuse. Those who present themselves as very feminine are more likely to become subjected to physical and emotional abuse. Those who present as very masculine are more likely to be abusive. In addition to gender roles influencing emotional and physical abuse in relationships, they have also been very detrimental in the establishment of a proper diagnosis for those suffering from emotional abuse and trauma. Although in modern times, post-traumatic stress disorder is widely accepted and attended to, originally, that wasn't the case. The first reports of what was dubbed hysteria came from women who displayed motor paralysis, sensory losses, convulsions, and amnesias, and were never formally defined. French neurologist Jean-Martin Charcot began studying the condition in the mid-1800s, giving the first scientific inquiry in what was previously just considered a non-scientific women's condition originating in the uterus. When Charcot died, Sigmund Freud took over his studies in hysteria. By the mid-1890s, Pierre Janet and Freud 
both came to the conclusion that hysteria was caused by psychological trauma. Freud argued that anyone can be a victim for, to hysteria, even, quote, people of the clearest intellect, strongest will, greatest character, and highest critical power. As investigation progressed, for the first time, people were listening to women. Freud heard shocking tales of sexual assault, abuse, and incest. Freud had enough information to make the claim that, quote, at the bottom of every case of hysteria, there are one or more occurrences of premature sexual experience, end quote. When Freud came to this conclusion, however, it meant that there had been sexual assault occurring in prestigious families all over Europe. This was simply too outrageous a claim, and Freud concluded that what the women were saying couldn't be true, or at least shouldn't be exposed to the public. Throughout the rest of his life, he denied his findings, again keeping women from a diagnosis and treatment. During World War I, women were cast to the side as men returning from war began behaving similarly to that of hysterical women. Men, expected to act strong and unflinching, especially in battle, lost their memory, capacity to feel, and experienced mental breakdowns. Eventually, military psychologists were forced to accept that these behaviors came from psychological trauma. Still, Due to the way men were supposed to behave according to gender roles, psychologists called the suffering men moral invalids and did not treat them as patients. More progressive doctors, however, such as W.H.R. Rivers, believed that there was medical truth to these men's symptoms. Rivers treated a well-known, courageous war patient who had exhibited symptoms of hysteria with dignity and respect through psychotherapy. When the patient became better and even returned to war, legitimacy was brought to the trauma that war veterans face. In 1970, during the Vietnam War, two psychiatrists, Robert J. Lifton and James Shayton, met with the group Vietnam Veterans Against the War. Together, they helped create groups that aided veterans with psychological trauma and raised awareness about the legitimate trauma many soldiers face. In 1980, the American Psychiatric Association finally acknowledged the disorder as post-traumatic stress disorder, or PTSD. Around this time, too, women's groups have been pushing for recognition of their sexual traumas. A center for research on rape was created within the National Institute of Mental Health. Dr. Judith Herman writes that, quote, Only after 1980, when the efforts of combat veterans had legitimized the concept of post-traumatic stress disorder, did it become clear that the psychological syndrome was seen in survivors of rape, domestic battery, and incest was essentially the same syndrome seen in the survivors of war. There is a war between the sexes. Rape victims, battered women, and sexually abused children are the casualties. Hysteria is the combat neurosis of the sex war. End quote. That recognition was crucial. Now, in modern day, experts are beginning to see the links between PTSD and trauma from emotional abuse. According to the South African College of Applied Psychology, the experience of emotional abuse can affect the nervous system in the same way that physical abuse does. Experts now diagnose patients who have been emotionally abused with complex post-traumatic stress disorder, or CPTSD. The main difference from PTSD is that CPTSD usually occurs through long-term exposure to trauma, whereas PTSD can occur from one single event. Dr. Judith Herman from Harvard University, one of the leading experts in CPTSD, wrote in her book Trauma and Recovery examples of those who may experience complex post-traumatic stress disorder. Quote, a history of subjection to totalitarian control over a prolonged period, months to years. Unquote. 
the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs further touches on the issue of CPTSD, quoting Herman as well. Fortunately, this issue is recognized by the United States government and by many healthcare professionals. For those who have been subjected to any abuse, whether emotionally or physically, there is now strong recognition for their treatment and respect. Understanding this background of PTSD with respect to gender and having a stronger understanding of the gender roles that are still incorporated in today's society, one can have a better understanding of how emotional abuse can manifest and how it can affect anyone. Gender roles established through religion and general American culture clearly have profound effects on those living in American society. The role of gender and gender nonconformity is important to consider as we delve further into the issues, causes, and effects of emotional abuse.